Amen. Thank you so much for being with us, Hannah. Really appreciate it. So good to have Josh back with us too. You guys can have a seat. As Scott said, my name is Will French, and uh, it's my honor to be able to share with you today. Uh, My wife, Becca, and I and our son, Zane, have attended Castle Oaks for a number of years, so it's good to be with you today, whether here or online, Um, but it's really good to be back in this room today. So thank you for having me, and our prayers of celebration are certainly with the Vaughn family as they celebrate Austin's marriage. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. These are tense times that we live in. You might have noticed. COVID, race relations, economic concerns, political tensions that seem to be at an all-time high. I don't really need to bring up the litany of things that can cause anxiety, worry, your blood pressure to rise. They seem to be omnipresent, don't they? This tension, this sense of angst that can so easily bubble to the surface seems a clear reminder that things just are not right. We don't need to look very far for a reminder that the world is not what it is meant to be, that it groans for something else, something more, something beyond what we currently are. And the same is true within myself, if I am honest. I am reminded daily that I am far from what I should be. I need look no farther than my patience with my two-and-a-half-year-old son as a constant reminder of that. This past summer, I had the opportunity to go on a three-day horse-packing trip with my best friend in the Maroon Bells west of Aspen. This was a bucket list opportunity, one of my highlights of 2020. My friend Zach and I were roommates in college and both avid riders. During college, we were teaching assistants for the packing and outfitting class, where our knowledge and appreciation for the craft were developed. We both have spent dozens of nights in the backcountry, falling asleep to the bells of our horses grazing. We had talked about a trip to the Maroon Bells for years, and this past summer, our schedules miraculously aligned to give us the opportunity. We planned and plotted and schemed about our route. We talked with outfitters who had led trips in the area for 30 plus years. We consulted our mentors, and questioned Forest Service employees. Our goal was an almost 30-mile loop called the four-pass loop. The loop is popular with backpackers and some crazy trail runners who complete the entire loop in a single morning. But for a number of reasons, horsepacking on the loop is much less frequent. The area and the scenery is absolutely stunning. It is 30 miles of jaw-dropping, gorgeous views. Coming from a fifth-generation Colorado native that's been fortunate enough to experience much of this state, there is no prettier place. But it's also extremely rough country. The first day confirmed all of our suspicions. As we summited the first pass, our morale was high, with a picturesque view of three surrounding 14ers. It's how I imagine the Swiss Alps to be. The first day after lunch, we began a long, slow climb that would eventually end at the top of Trail Rider Pass. Along the way, we skirted above, about 800 feet above, Snowmass Lake, so high that we actually saw a helicopter making a rescue on the other side of the lake, a few hundred feet below us. 
that snowmass lake right there. As we exited a small group of trees just above Snowmass Lake, we stopped at the beginning of a significant rock scree slope. Our outfitter friends had warned us about this spot as the most technically difficult on the loop. I'm sure you may know that it takes a lot to get a horseback rider on foot, but my friend Zach was in front and he walked the hundred yards of the rocky hillside first. He thought it was passable, but best to lead the horses across. He started with his saddle horse and successfully scrambled to the other side. Okay, tricky but doable. As he scrambled back to us after securing his horse on the other side, I offered to take his pack horse across while he caught his breath, leaving my two horses for us to take on a second trip. The horse he packed that day, aptly named Charlie Brown, has seen hundreds of miles on the ranch and in the mountains and is a seasoned veteran. As we slipped and slided about two-thirds of the way across the narrow trail, the cadence to Charlie Brown's scrambling became much quicker as he struggled to find the exact placement for his feet. As I struggled to get out of his way, his back feet slipped off the trail. There was a terrible half-second that felt like an eternity as I held the lead rope, very clearly not able to hold this 1,100-pound horse or pull him back up on the trail, I could see how this was going to end. Multiple somersaults down the hill, culminating in a giant splash at the bottom in Snowmass Lake. He fell over halfway and landed on his back. Not a good start. But paused for another eternal second on his back, all four feet waving in the air. But momentum and gravity are king, and he continued his revolution completing one full somersault. Somehow, by the grace of God, one somersault was all he completed, and he was able to find a small ledge where he was able to stand and gain his composure. My heart was racing about a thousand beats a minute. I scrambled down to him, I let him catch his breath, and we somehow scrambled and struggled back up the trail to where the first horse was tied. Also, by God's grace, he did not have a single scratch on him. And he somehow completed his tumble down the mountain with his pack and pack saddle totally unscathed. Luckily, the other two horses were able to complete the slope relatively unharmed as well, minus one scrape on the leg. Our second day of three on the loop was similar to the first. Heavenly views, massive elevation gains and losses, and unfortunately also similar to the first day, as we were riding along another steep side hill section of the trail, that is primarily designed for backpackers and not quite wide enough for horses, gave way in a soft spot, and my friend Zach and his riding horse slipped down the hill for another heart-stopping few moments. Again, miraculously, all was well, and they were able to scramble their way back up on the trail. The second night, we were able to camp in a beautiful basin at the base of what would be our final ascent the next morning, West Maroon Pass. If you look closely, kind of at the dip of the dip of the ridge line, you can actually see the trail leading up to the pass, cut in the red red granite rock. What should have been a relaxing vacation turned into a night of unease and disquiet. Both Zach and I had traveled thousands of miles on horseback, and the previous 20 over the past two days had definitely been on the roughest terrain that we had seen. 
The information that we had so studiously gathered seemed at best to have the rose-colored hue of time, and at worst was simply incorrect as to the ability to successfully navigate this trail with a pack string. One horse off a trail could be written off as a bad, unlucky step, but twice in two days clearly had us both unsettled. There was very little sleep that night as we both tossed and turned and stewed over what the next day would bring. What are the things in your life that leave you unsettled, disquieted? Those things that might not be so obvious, might not be the mountain pass staring you in the face, but the things that gnaw at you, the things that leave a pit in your stomach. Or think about the times or situations where you might not be able to name the cause, but there is a restlessness, a sense of dread, or even more subtly of just plain disquiet. In Psalm 42, 5, David recognizes these times saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? We all have those times when we recognize that things are not settled and at peace within ourselves internally. For many of us, the pandemic has brought to the surface those feelings of significant disquiet, of a discomfort deep within our souls, an anxiety not just about what what might happen in the next six to 12 months, but a sense of dread about what new battles tomorrow might bring. Sometimes an easy response is just to push those feelings away. I'm as guilty of this as anyone, to stifle them, to ignore the unrest within me and just push through. Sometimes it's easier to push it down by numbing, focus my attention on something else, on food, on the screen. I'd like to offer three possible responses for the times that we sense and feel that disquiet in our lives. Paul Perdue says, quote, a deep sense that this is not right may be the birth of a new vision for our living. It may be that God is not silent when the walls fall down and the pleasant places seem ruined, but that God is longing to do a new thing in us and through us. Romans 8, 26 and 27 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Wordless groans. Where our deepest tension our deepest angst that cannot be given words that we feel but cannot name. The Spirit is groaning on our behalf in ways that we did not even know that we needed. And similarly, the Spirit of God pushes us forward, nudges us. So I think one of the first things to consider in the evaluation of this disquiet is, is this from God? Is this a holy nudge or shove to move on to something different, to take a different path, to address a situation differently? Is this God's way of saying to move off of the current mark? As we begin this Lenten season, I wonder what disquiet God is asking you to face up to. Frequently during Lent, we engage in the practice of giving something up. Sweets, social media, screen time, routine fasting. The practice of self-denial can be a purposeful introduction of disruption into our normal routine. The occasional pain of going without 
can be a vivid reminder to turn our ear towards the Holy Spirit. The second response, and for me, probably the most difficult, is that this holy disquiet, a holy discontent, may be the season or the time that God is asking us to dwell upon for a little while, to sit with the tension without an obvious response. As many of you know, I'm a veterinarian who works on horses. I love my job, and it's a privilege to get to do what I do every day. However, as I started my career, I naively thought that I would go to vet school and learn how the animal body worked so that I could restore it to its normal order, learn the cures for the diseases. Disease is the ultimate disquiet, the ultimate discontent, dis-ease, disease. We as doctors want to cure, and we want to make it better. Of course, I realized that I would not be able to cure everything, and obviously there are some cases when it becomes clear that the end is here that for our animal friends, that euthanasia could be the best course. That in and of itself brings a finality to it though, doesn't it? The Greek roots of euthanasia are EU, U, meaning good, and thanatos meaning death. The good death bringing an end to the suffering. We focus on that end result. But what about the road leading up to that day, to that decision? How do we know when it's time? How do we deal with the uncertainty? How many things can we not make better? How many diagnoses and conditions must we learn to live with, to sit with, to chew on, and to stew over? For me, emergency medicine is easy. There's typically a quick decision to be made, and the patient really either gets better or they don't. The truly difficult cases, the ones that I lose sleep over, are the management of chronic conditions. It's a long, slow process of, did I make the right call, the right dosage adjustment? Have I done all the diagnostics I could? Am I continuing to see this case objectively even after all this time? Atul Gawande is an author who recognizes this tension in medicine too. He's a human surgeon who writes in his book, Complications. We look for medicine to be an orderly field of knowledge and procedure, but it is not. It is an imperfect science, an enterprise of constantly changing knowledge, uncertain information, fallible individuals, and at the same time, lives on the line. There's science in what we do, yes, but also habit, intuition, and sometimes plain old guessing. The gap between what we know and what we aim for persists, and this gap complicates everything that we do. That gap is a very uncomfortable place to be. But unfortunately, that gap, that tension, can be right where God wants us, to learn the lessons and ultimately to find surrender in him. What are the lessons to be learned during this time of tension, of not knowing, of this journey without an obvious end in sight? The clear biblical parallel to a journey without a clear end in sight is the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. I'll be honest, if I go through a season of discontent that lasts a month, I think it's a long time but 40 years? You think God was trying to make a point to them that this exact place is where he wanted them, this desert, and he was not yet ready to reveal the next step. I've never been pregnant, but uh, I remember my wife's pregnancy with our son Zane well. It was a hopeful time. It was an exciting time, but uncomfortable, deep with anticipation, some worry, 
Some true physical discomfort, much more for her than me. (laughs) It was the anticipation of what is to come, but what is not yet fully realized. And if we turn back to Romans 8 and look at verse 23 to 25, I think that the message translation captures it well. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pains. But it is not only around us, it is within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pains. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. This is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. And finally, the third response to disquiet in our souls is a realization of the fact that this world is not the final stop. That ultimately, that sense of unease is indeed true. That things in this world are not what they should be. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, but he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Everything is beautiful in its time, but he has also set eternity in our hearts. That eternal longing is there on purpose and a recognition of more to come. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. There's a recognition of that tension, right? That desire which no experience in the world can satisfy. And 2 Corinthians 4.18 So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There is undoubtedly evil in this world. And I would argue that our sense of right and wrong is deeply ingrained in us. But knowing that to a certain extent, wrong will persist until the second coming will lead to a disquiet in our souls. Since the Garden of Eden, things have not been as they should. When things are not as they should be, we know it and we can feel it. Now, this is not to say, oh, evil exists and we just have to deal with it. Let it run its course. Similarly, if we continue to use the analogy of medicine, it's not like because there's a gap in our scientific knowledge or our medical ability that we simply shrug our shoulders and say, oh, that's the way it is. But at the same time, we must realize that just as a cure will not be found for some diseases in my lifetime, that some wrongs will not be righted this side of eternity. If we think about it, our very conversion is a tension. It's a dying of our old self to a new self, giving up of our old self. It's not an issue of once I become a Christian, all is good. Pray the sinner's prayer. Yeah, you're good to go. No, this is a continual process, becoming more Christ-like. Our conversion is a recognition of the tension of what was, what is, and what is to come. When we celebrate at the table, we recognize that God has set eternity in our hearts, 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Proclaiming our connection to eternity by celebrating the table, recognizing that eternal bent. The morning of the third day of our pack trip dawned, and Zach and I quietly sipped coffee, staring at the trail in front of us, both too nervous to eat any breakfast. We had consulted the maps. There was no way around. And we certainly weren't going back over the passes where we just had two wrecks. West Maroon Pass was almost as scary on top as it looked from below. The actual pass was so narrow at the top that the front of my horse started to go down the other side before the back end had fully reached the summit. Zach, who is as tough and strong a guy as I know, was ghost white and said, you better go first. We made it down safely that day without further mishap. The trip to the Bells is not something that I will soon forget. The beautiful views, the good company, the harrowing mishaps. But that feeling of the second night, staring up at the pass, is what will really stick with me. Knowing that we had the summit, but not knowing whether it was actually passable. That gut-wrenching churn in our stomachs, the unease, the disquiet, is what I won't soon forget. And so my hope and my prayer for you this week is that as we face the tension, the holy disquiet within our souls that will undoubtedly come at some point, that we ask ourselves, is this a holy nudge? Or is this the season that I've been asked to be in? Or is this a need to turn towards the eternal?